You know, two years ago, uh, it felt as though the vision at Revolve was super clear. Some of you guys weren't here two years ago. Some of you were. But we were getting involved with the refugee camp in Lesvos. We had thoughts and dreams and aspirations and plans to be sending families there for 90 days at a time, a month at a time, a few weeks at a time. We were going to have recurring teams of people who were going to be sent to the island to share the gospel and to work among the refugee camp in Lesvos. And then COVID hit and then Moria camp burned down and... Uh, frankly, it kind of feels like the wind just got sucked out of everything, right? And so yesterday we had our elders retreat where we spent the first few hours in prayer and, and then we started interacting and discussing what we feel like the Lord wants us to talk about, not coming with an agenda, but saying to the Lord, you know, what do you want to say to us? And we really felt like one of the things that God wanted us to spend time on was vision. What is like, what are we doing now? You know, now that so many things have dried up, so many things have disappeared, what are we doing now besides, you know, just be healthy, just keep marching forward? I mean, that's easy to say. And so this was the local vision statement that we nailed down. Um, and you're going to hear a lot about this in the coming weeks. Through equipping, this is our local vision. Through, we have a global vision statement as well for another day. Through equipping and empowering disciples to make disciples— where they live, work, learn, and play, we seek to saturate Cape May County with healthy groups of disciples. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the elders want to continue to embody, in other words, model these things to you, to equip you in this regard, to empower you, giving you opportunities to live these things out and to encourage you as you attempt it. We want to do these things with you so that you can grow as a disciple and you can also make disciples where you live, work, learn, and play. We want to understand, we want to ensure that you understand spiritual health in a simple way and that you have any of the tools and resources necessary to have health become a reality in your lives, in your family, and in your social circles. We want to see the people of Revolve spreading across the county like hot coals, starting Discovery Bible studies where they live, where they work, where they learn, where they play. We want to see those Discovery Bible studies turn into, over time, healthy discipleship groups. We want to see those people mature and then become the impetus or the flashpoint for more groups to start in other areas until the whole county is saturated. And so step one is working towards that goal of having a healthy group in every municipality in the county and then going to every neighborhood in the county into every census tract and so that we can say that we did everything in our power by the grace of God to saturate the county with healthy groups of disciples who are making disciples. And so where do we begin? How do we do that, right? How do we do that? Well, two weeks ago, we said that you need to change your perspective so that it shifts to thinking about the next generation, that you can't just think about you, your Christianity, what you like, what you enjoy, what you want to do, what you want to, um, you know, look forward to, but what does the next generation need? What does your neighbor need? What does your coworker need? What do your classmates need? Last week, we talked about how the first step in that is owning the gospel personally, that if you don't own the gospel personally, everything else is just flesh. 
Everything else is just flesh, religiosity, and Phariseeism. It's just religion without the Spirit. And this week we want to talk about predictable patterns. Predictable patterns. You know, we live in a world that values spontaneity. I don't know if you realize that. We live in a world that values spontaneity. It's quite unfashionable to prize yourself on having a predictable life. So, well, I have oatmeal every Monday. Well, aren't you thrilling, right? <laughs> and so it's not, it's not really considered a, a, a cool thing to have a predictable life. And if we're honest, families that are spontaneous are like viewed as the cool families. And if you're not like that, you're basically the Von Trapps, right? And, and your dad blows a whistle and you all line up and then you sound off and the sound of music in case you don't know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. If you've read almost any book written on educating children or adults for that matter, you'll find that structure and predictable patterns are necessary for successful education. Now, imagine, as an example, if the rules of football changed every week. And it's like this week, the, you know, you're watching the Eagles play, but it's like, oh, guess what? Uh, touchdown's only worth one point this week, but field goals, they're worth 20. I mean, so if the, if the rules changed every single week, you would not be able to strategize. You wouldn't be able to plan. You wouldn't be able to train. It would be chaos. Now, this is true in reality as well, not just in Bill's artificial made-up football illustration. I don't, those are the only rules I know about football, by the way. There's touchdowns and field goals. But for example, in the Montessori structure of education, from the outside looking in, you would think it was very free range, but it's actually very structured. And then the, the teacher is like a facilitator guiding the child through various stages of education. And so because the fence has been clearly established, they're able to put in a seesaw, and they're able to put in a slide, and they're able to put in a sandbox, and lots of things to play. And so the, the security of the fence, of the guide rails, of the structure, creates freedom inside the environment. That's what predictable patterns do. You see, predictable patterns are important because much of what you think you know about as it relates to discipleship or making disciples or even being a Christian comes from the predictable patterns that you have observed, okay? So this is the reality. You got to embrace this fact. I want if I could smack you in the head with this, I would. Most of what you think you know about being a disciple and making disciples is what you've observed. For those of you who grew up in the high church, you, you memorize through predictable patterns when to stand, when to sit, when, what to recite, when to recite it, what to pray, how to pray it, when to pray it. If you come to Revolve, normally today was different, but normally three, three songs, prayer, sermon, run home, right? That's Revolve's predictable pattern. But it's also true of things like evangelism. How did you come to faith? If you came to faith because someone invited you to a church service, what do you think is going to be your default method of evangelism? You can say it. Inviting someone to church. If you came to faith because you had a long, arduous wrestling with apologetics, what do you tend to assume everybody else needs to do? Have a long, arduous wrestle with apologetics. You see, the way we came to faith is how we have been conditioned through a predictable pattern, and then we tend to just innately pass that on. 
patterns and rhythms build conditioning in people. It becomes like spiritual muscle memory. Now, this is the problem. The problem is we have developed loads of unhealthy conditioning and patterns in the evangelical church in the United States. For example, bloated methods of evangelism. I think it was Lifeway that did research, uh, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, did research a few years ago on the average cost per baptism in the United States. In other words, what they meant by that is if you take all of the amount of money churches are spending on evangelism and you boil it down to someone who comes to faith and is baptized. I'm not talking about baptizing kids. I'm talking about someone who comes to faith and is baptized, and then you divide those numbers, you get the average cost per baptism in the United States. Okay? This doesn't this isn't what Revolve spends. So don't like write me a hate mail. Okay? It's 1.5 million dollars. The average cost per baptism, you can show you how bloated our evangelism methods are in the United States, 1.5 million dollars per baptism. In India, in one of the church planning movements that I'm acquainted with, it was 12 cents of baptism. That goes to show you that we have observed a process of how evangelism happens, lights, camera, action, and then we repeat that. And we think if we pour more money and more money and more money and it will work, it just creates a bloated environment. Some of the other things that we've noticed as conditions, how about professionalism galore? You little people can't read the Bible. You didn't go to seminary like me, right? That idea that you have to be the best singer, the best worship leader, the best this. If you're really good, you'll get a book deal. You'll get a record deal. You'll have a podcast. You'll be on TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook because that's what the world defines as success. And so therefore, we are conditioned to think that's what Christian success should look like. But if we strip all of that away, if we take all of that away and we say, forget that, according to the scriptures, what is the most basic core conditioning that we need to model for our family and to model for our disciples? What are the simple, predictable patterns, the basic rhythms and habits that will empower my family, will empower me, will empower that my social circle to know how to grow as a disciple and be a disciple and disciple others? That's what predictable patterns are all about. You guys following me so far? In other words... How you disciple other people will mold how they disciple other people. So Jesus, by the way, was super predictable. Jesus has remarkable predictable patterns in his life. Um, I'll just give you a couple examples. He retreated alone frequently to spend time with God the Father in prayer. He would get up early, as was his custom, before, while it was still dark, to go to a secluded place and spend time with God in prayer. He would often eat meals with people. If you read through the Gospels, do you realize how much of the Gospel narratives happen over a meal? He would frequently eat meals with people. He would speak to them about the kingdom of God. He would invite people into relationship with, them, with himself and love them well. He was predictable that you never had to worry about catching Jesus on a bad day. Like if one day you were like, please heal my crippled son, and he was like, oh, you're an idiot. You didn't have to worry about that. Jesus was predictable in the way he responded. He always opposed the proud. He always gave grace to the humble 100% of the time. He is predictable. And that gives us comfort. 
Now, as parents, we want to be predictable. We don't want to fly off the cuff one day. Now we're terrible at it, but we know that that's what our hope is, that we want to have that predictability in the way that we parent so our kids can feel safe and comforted. But if you were going to boil down Jesus's predictable patterns in his life, you can see it happening in three main areas, up, in, and out, okay? Up, meaning that Jesus had a vibrant relationship with the Father. He had a vertical relationship with the Father. Horizontally, Jesus was building a new community of disciples that he called his family, who he was going to love them, he was going to serve them, he was going to heal them, he was going to die for them. And then Jesus had this world that wasn't yet part of his family, but we see how Jesus interacted with the world. And so Jesus was, was living in this vertical and horizontal world. This is his predictable pattern. He connects with the Father. He g- goes through all the one another's with his family, you know, the, the apostles, his troop that travels with him. And then he ministers to the world. And this is like his spiritual DNA. These are his predictable patterns of life and ministry. And like I said, the the predictable patterns and rhythms are important because they embed within us or within Jesus' disciples and his followers exactly what they were supposed to do. And so notice, when Jesus ascends to be with the Father, he simply says in the Gospel of John, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We don't see Jesus going and saying, this is what you have to do. This is your rhythm. This is your pattern. Basically, Jesus says to them, everything you've seen me doing and that we've been doing together, go and do that. And when you look at the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church, that's exactly what they do. They eat together. They go to the synagogue together. They heal the sick together. They pray. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is actually the teaching of Christ now being passed along through oral tradition. And so they essentially keep doing the exact same thing that Jesus was doing. What they saw and heard and observed in Christ, they go and pass on, which is exactly why Paul says, what you've seen and heard and observed in me, keep on practicing, Philippians 4.9. We see those same patterns continue. And so I want to read just a little bit from the Gospel of Mark. This sermon is going to be a little different than normal. I want to read a little bit from the Gospel of Mark so you can see what I'm talking about. I'm beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness where he was being tempted by Satan. Okay, and so this is Jesus is connecting up with the father. Jesus is obeying the father like he says elsewhere in Matthew that this is good for him to be baptized so that righteousness would be accomplished. And so he goes in obedience to the father to be baptized in the name of the father. Right. And as he's being baptized, the spirit of God descends on him and Jesus hears the father speaking to him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus receives that identity acknowledges that identity. I'll explain why in a moment. And then he obeys the Spirit's prompting by being driven into the wilderness to be tempted. And if you go and read Matthew chapter 4, do you know how he's tempted specifically? About his identity. 
Satan says, if you are the son of God, if you truly are the son of God, and so having heard from the father that he is the son of God, he is then tempted by Satan specifically about what he's heard. This is Jesus wrestling with his vertical connection with God and ultimately succeeding in the garden where, or in the wilderness where Adam and Eve failed. But this is Jesus connecting with the father. In John, we read it this way, that John, G, John says that Jesus only did what the Father told him to do, that Jesus only said what the Father told him to say, that he heard and obeyed the Father. He lived out the Shema that Caleb read, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, to love the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus knew who he was. He knew whose he was. We continue in Mark now, immediately after that, what happens? After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He starts proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So from this connection with the Father, where he's hearing his identity spoken over him, he's receiving it. Jesus is going out, and he's proclaiming the gospel obediently to the Father. Then, continuing, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net, for they were fishermen. And he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him. You see, so now Jesus is inviting a new community. And so we see these three dimensions of Jesus' life. He's connecting with the Father. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the world. And then he's building this new family who are going to be the family that he loves unconditionally. We continue in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. He left the synagogue. And what did he do? He goes and stays at Simon's house. This is part of that connecting inward. He's staying at Simon's house. He's eating a meal with him. He heals Simon's mother-in-law while he's there. In the, in, the next, in the next paragraph, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate, play where, desolate place where he prayed. What's that? He's, say it out loud. You guys look like you're falling asleep. He's connecting up, okay? Then he goes, he goes to Simon, and he goes to his disciples, and he says, um, and Simon says to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says to him, let us go. What is that? Internal. Jesus is inviting them. He says, I got to go. No, he says, you come with me. We're a family on mission. We're a troop on mission. This is an apostolic team. We're in this together. And it says, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach, for that is why I came. And so he goes preaching, and he says he's preaching, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing the sick. And so we see Jesus consistently operating in those three dimensions connecting up with God, connecting in with his new church family, we would say, and then connecting out with the world as he brings the gospel, heals the sick, as he goes to the least, the last, and the lost. The same thing we see in John and the rest of the gospel, the rest of the New Testament. In John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Well, that's not new. Even as I have loved you, love one another. And then he washes their feet right? And so he's saying, this is how you need to love one another. This is the connecting in. And of course, Jesus ultimately connects out by dying on the cross for the sins of his elect, that they would be brought safely into God's kingdom. So Jesus has this pattern in his life of up, in, and out. It's the most basic spiritual DNA. Connect with God, 
We could give you 50 tools on how to do that, but connect with God, connect with God's people, and live out the mission. But now we have a problem. Although we have the Holy Spirit living within us, Jesus says it's actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit living within us than to have Jesus walking around with us. Our patterns of discipleship have become increasingly muddied by culture and the conditioning we have observed. So we think we need to be smarter. We think we need to be more important. We think we need to be louder. We think we need to be flashier. We think we need all of these things, but we need to declutter all of that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to look at the church growth movement of the last three decades, okay? If we're spending $1.5 million to lead someone to Jesus, when technically all we need is a mouth, the spirit, and the word of God, we're doing something wrong, okay? And so we need to declutter our understanding, our conditioning of Christianity, of what it means to follow Christ, and re-embrace these basic patterns of up, in, and out that we see in the life of Jesus. And for me, okay, for me, because I so firmly believe in the Spirit and the Word, there has been no greater tool in the last 10 years than the Discovery Bible Study. I know some of you hate it, but I have a microphone. Okay? especially when the Discovery Bible study is done with your family or your natural social circles. Now, before we go into the Discovery Bible study, because some of you guys don't know what that is, I want to comment on a few things. I really do mean this. I know some of you guys don't like it. I understand that. I know some of you think it's juvenile and basic, and you're right. It is juvenile and basic. That is the point. The point is that it's juvenile and basic. Listen, some of the best things in life are easy enough for a child to do, but then you can dedicate your whole life to improving and growing. And the reason they have such enduring value is their simplicity. Want me to give you some examples? Singing. When your child sings at a key, you think it's beautiful. But you can devote your whole life to growing as a singer and becoming the, you know, the next Josh Groban or something. Swimming. You can teach a child to, to doggy paddle or you can go to the Olympics. Running, climbing, fishing. These are things that a child can do and they're beautiful because they're basic, but you can also dedicate your whole life to growing. My point is this, just because something is simple doesn't mean it's worthless, okay? Often the best things in life are simple. In my experience, training a year ago I was in Iraq, today. Two years ago we were in Greece, today. Three years ago we had come back from Indonesia less than a week ago. Having trained people in this all over the world, it is a natural method that moves people towards maturity. They don't stop at the DBS, and I'm not suggesting we should stop at the DBS, but they start there. See, the DBS isn't designed to be a, an ending point, but a starting point. It empowers you, it empowers your disciples to grow on your own and to teach others to do the same. It puts you on a trajectory of success by helping you to establish simple, predictable patterns. That's the point of the DBS. And maybe I've never, 
I, I've never explained this corporately because I only talked about it in the hub training, our disciple-making training. If you don't have a pen, I want you to grab one or a crayon, steal a crayon from your kids, grab a piece of paper because we're going to go over this. Now, I want you to note that in my family, we do all three parts of the DBS, but we don't do them all at the same time. In other words, there's parts of the DBS we do around the kitchen table when we say, what are you thankful for today? What are you stressed about? There's parts of the DBS that we do in the morning when the kids read the Bible with us. There's parts of the DBS that we do when we're driving around and we see something. And so you make it work for your family, but imitate before you innovate, okay? Now, if you think about the Discovery Bible study, what you find is that it literally breaks up into up, in, and out, but it breaks up into them into this order, in, up, out. That's what the DBS is, in, up, out. If you don't know what the DBS is, you can grab these book cards or these bookmarks. We have bookmarks somewhere. We'll have them next week if we don't. These are the basic questions we ask when we do a Discovery Bible study. As we connect in with one another, what are you thankful for? And what's causing you stress? That's very basic. But that predictable pattern eventually leads to a vibrant prayer life. What is God teaching you? Or what did we read the last time, the last time we met? Fostering this environment of talking about the word together. Did you follow through on the commitments you feel like God put on your heart? You see, those things are building a predictable pattern in your group, in your family, in your social circle, at your workplace as you do a Bible study together, building predictable patterns of, my kids will tell you that they are very comfortable praying publicly. And it's because for the last three or four years, we have every single day at dinner talked about what are you thankful for, what are you stressed about. And then at some point in time, we started praying those things instead. Now, she might not want to pray here right now, but she'll pray in our home. <laughs> what is God teaching you? What did we read yesterday? What did we talk about last week? That's the first part. That's in. That's real relationship. That's spiritually rooted. And those are simple questions, but the idea is to give a predictable pattern in your home, in your social circles, whereby you can grow. Then connecting up. What do we do when we connect up? Well, we read the word. We read the word. We read a passage of scripture. And we ask basic questions. What did you like? What did you not like? What isn't clear? And then we try to paraphrase the passage in our own words. All right, what did we, what, let's rephrase that story together. And then we ask two basic questions. And if you think these questions are dull, tell it to John Calvin. What did we teach about God? What does this teach about God? What does it teach about people? John Calvin called this the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. He said it was the two most basic, important questions a believer could ever ask when studying the Word of God. And we found that to be true. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us vertically about the things of God? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, His Word, prayer, these things of God that are these divine things. And what does it teach about me and my character? Because this is the reality. If every part of your studying leads you to the reality that God is holier than you realize and you're far more sinful than you could imagine, you're going in a good direction. And if that's the goal, if that's the end result of 90% of your Discovery Bible studies, great. We're connecting upwards with God to hear from His Word. 
and then out. Well, what does it look like to apply this to our lives? To the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we talk, the way that we work, the way that we spend our money. What does it look like to live this out? And we talk about that. And then basic questions. Do you know someone who needs to hear this passage? Not, is there someone who you need to explain every little tidbit of Christianity to? No, is there someone who you could say, I read Mark 1, 9 to 13, and made me think of you, here it is. Do you know someone who this family, this group, this Bible study can help? Now, if you notice, the framework of predictable patterns that we saw in Jesus' life are all there in the DBS. He engages in meaningful community. He seeks the Father for truth and obeys his every word. And then he goes out and he goes to seek and save the lost, engaging the world with truth and with action. Listen, the DBS is one simple, predictable pattern. It's not the only one. It, it just happens to be the one that I like, okay? But I'm telling you that it can greatly benefit you and your family. There's a reason that these simple, predictable patterns are sparking movements of the gospel all over the Middle East. Okay? In Iran, in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, all those documentaries that we talk about, those things you hear, people say, man, the Afghanistan church is growing like crazy. Do you know what they're doing? Discovery Bible study. Because God always has used two things to build his kingdom, prim primarily the word and the spirit, and then a vessel, three things. His church, the word, and the spirit. And so the bottom line is that as the gospel goes forward, the spirit of God quickens it. And all I'm saying is let's declutter our models of discipleship to have them be simple and predictable because our kids can, listen, this is the rub. I'm, I'm walking up front. You know it's serious. I'm going to say it emphatically. You can call me a false prophet in 20 years if you want. The church growth movement is dead. It's dead. The megachurch movement, it's dying. Your kids cannot rely on those same methods to bring the world to Christ. Your kids need to think organically and simply and underground. We don't know whether this world is going to end in 10 years, 50 years, or 1,000 years, but we do know our kids' generation is one generation closer. And so let's equip them for what they need. Because we cannot rely on the 100,000-person churches. It needs to go grassroots. At the end of the day, you may not want to use the DBS, but you do need to establish predictable patterns in your life, in your family, and in your social circles. Because this is the bottom line. You can't pass on what you don't possess. And so if those predictable patterns aren't real for you personally, they won't be real for your home. And if they're not real for your home, they won't be real for your church. And if they are real for your discipleship group, but not your home or your person, there's a word to describe that. It's called Pharisee. It goes from micro to macro. And so choose your own rhythms. Make them your own. But imitate these basic things that we see in Jesus' life before you try to think outside of the box and innovate. 
So the question is, do you have clear patterns that you can pass on? Would your kids be able to read the Bible with one of their friends without you there? That's what we need to think about. I want you to imagine for a moment, bear with me, I want you to imagine for a moment that every single family unit, whether you're a single or you're six people, every single family unit in this room, imagine if we all took this seriously. Imagine if every single family unit was connecting up to hear God and obey him, connecting in an authentic, real, visceral community, and then going out from their place of community to go and bring the gospel, proclaim the kingdom, and go and seek and save the lost, demonstrating and declaring the kingdom of God. Imagine if as you do that at your place of work, you find that one of your coworkers is actually open and rather of trying to bend their arm into submitting to the gospel, you simply ask them if they'd like to start reading the Bible together and they host it at their house. And imagine if you start seeing Bible studies happen in random neighborhoods all over the county that are being hosted by people who two weeks ago weren't even reading the Bible and now they're hosting these discovery Bible studies in their own house. Imagine if churches around our county employed simple discipleship rhythms instead of bloated gimmicks. Listen, we don't need, I said this to the elders yesterday, we don't need a new app. We need a new operating system. Another building isn't going to solve the problem. We need to think differently about reaching our king, about God's, reaching this, this world with God's kingdom. Imagine what God could do if we embrace those simple patterns of living in, up, and out. Because he's always used the word and the, the spirit and obedient people. And these simple, predictable patterns put God and his word at the front, and they put us at the back. Because then it's not about how great of a teacher I am, or how dynamic I am, or how charismatic I am, or what a great singer I am, or, or how this I am, or how that I am. It's about God is just drawing people. Predictable patterns like the Discovery Bible Study create spiritual muscle memory within us so that we build a culture of discipleship in our home, in our church, and in our community. So I want you to take time this week to thoughtfully engage with your life and say, what are our rhythms and patterns? What are my rhythms and patterns? What are the predictable patterns of my life? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because this is the way forward. I'm convinced of it.